house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. I just want to help. What are you, some kind of Boy Scout? Eagle Scout, actually, first class. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, God, Sam, what's the There's no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military boot prints, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Why do you need to do this? Because nobody else will. Dave, you made a mistake! Get away from the window. Paul, oh, are you okay? No. Why'd you do it? You put your face out there for him to see. Hello? Who is this? Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. Killing is his compulsion. It drives him. It's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was... I certainly wouldn't tell you. Hello, this is the Zodiac speaking, and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that sees a few lawbreakers in the house tonight. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my bow-tied, gun-holstered, constantly asking for Animal Crackers co-host... Joe Reed. Hello, I am your hurdy-gurdy man for this evening. <laughs> this morning, I should say. We record in the morning, but yes. Um, thank you for comparing me to Mark Ruffalo. God, flattered. Mark, uh, you know what? I, I, I like to dole out compliments and flattery because <laughs> as anybody knows who perhaps follows me on Twitter, I find Mark Ruffalo in this movie to be very handsome. Yeah, he's 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 basically like Peter Falk, right? Like, well, and it's interesting because if you it's like Peter Falk hair, there, the he's very ties. sort of like definitional of this California quirky detective. Um, if you read up on anything about this movie or sort of the Zodiac case in general, the character he's playing, uh, Dave Toski, is was the inspiration for Dirty Harry. Slightly, like, the first Dirty Harry movie was about, like, a very Zodiac-type killer, and we mm-hmm. actually see a scene in the movie where they go and see Dirty Harry, and it's, like, all pulled from his own sort of experiences, and he was also, like, the style inspo for um, Steve McQueen in Bullet. So this was, like, a detective mm-hmm. who was kind of, like, known as sort of, like, again, Calif- very California, where, like... People who are in the news become celebrities, even if they're not like in, um, you know, roles uh, or or professions that would lend themselves to celebrity. I think you see that with the Brian Cox character, where he's playing this kind of grandiose lawyer mm-hmm. who has like jumped the rail to celebrity lawyer, and it all feels very correct in terms of like the time and space within. This movie was taking place. 
A movie that gets time and place incredibly correctly in a way that is so entertaining and fascinating to watch. Yes, absolutely. The first seconds of the movie. It's one of the things that Fincher does so very well, even when he's doing something contemporary, where it's like he knows the environment and like sets you in it so well because the details are so specific. Like, this is late 60s, early 70s for the most of the movie in San Francisco. And, like, you get the cultural reference. Like, you see the hair poster in the background. Like, the Dirty Harry stuff, the bullet stuff. Mark Ruffalo gets called bullet in the movie and doesn't like it. Um, Yes. (laughs) Like, the building, uh, the... The construction of whatever the pointy the building is pyramid called in San tower Francisco, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, which is so iconic to their skyline. Um, it's all just so specific in ways that I'm sure we'll keep getting into as this episode goes on. But yes, we are here to talk about David Fincher's Zodiac, which we were trying to do more episodes this month that were readily available on streaming, and this one, without any fanfare, got dropped off of whatever platform it was on after we made that announcement. So if anybody was looking for it and couldn't find it or had to pay for it, I apologize. That is my fault for not being able to find anywhere that said that it was going to drop. A so. true a true gotcha that we did not intend. But uh, yeah, I was trying was to sort of like... Of Zodiac, really. I was going to say, I was trying to attribute this to some sort of like Zodiac-esque trait where it's just like it would just like disappear for years on end or whatever. But... Uh, the yeah. new Zodiac terrorism is Sorry the Zodiac is dropping movies from streaming platforms before they're supposed to leave. That's what the Zodiac has has graduated. But to. I um, we I early on we had a listener tweet that they're like expecting us to say that this is the best movie that we've ever covered on this podcast. And tell me if you disagree, but I think that is absolutely true i was actually gonna bring this up uh i don't think i had seen that tweet but uh i was thinking that as i was watching this it was just like oh this is easily the best movie we've ever covered on this podcast which is no slight to the other movies on this podcast that we've covered that we've liked it's just like this is just one of Mm -hmm. like the best movies i've ever seen like not to get like too hyperbolic about it but just like there are a few movies that i find as deeply satisfying and that i can just sort of like fold myself into which is weird to say about a movie that is not comforting like this is not a comfort food movie but i find it so effective at telling its story and sort of like it's a two and a half hour movie so it takes its time and it kind of like wraps you up in this alternating sense of dread which it has in so many of its scenes it's so effective at at, like communicating this dread but also in this it's it's the rare movie that is as good as a sort of like processy people use the term shoe leather a lot which i find is like you know a cliche but like often an effective one um and people really like those kind of stories that get into the nuts and bolts of an investigation of like of professional people trying to figure out a problem while at the same time it's also the most like artistically kind of gorgeous there's so many scenes stunning. in this movie they're just like absolutely stunning and and fincher clearly is making it's like a procedural art film and he did the same thing with seven which is Seven's more of a 
concepty kind of a thing, a more of a high concept thing, more subversive. Seven real never really quite feels like it's happening in the real world, whereas like obviously Zodiac is very much rooted in reality and the sort of like the disappointing and a lot of actual truthful details yeah. and like he's recreating entire crime scenes like down to minutia of like the physical details of the space to one thing i want to say before i like piggyback on what you have to say i actually kind of found this a comforting watch even though like it's an absolutely terrifying movie but like there's something that is so immediately absorbing in this movie where it's like you kind of get tunnel vision when you're watching it right so it's like i found it kind of a, a wonderful distraction in ways that even like the popcorn candy movies that i've watched haven't been in all of this um but to your point about like the way that this movie is so completely terrifying in a procedural way i think one of the things that makes it so effective is the fact that all of these whether it's the actual crime scene scenes where you actually see the murders take place or like the horrifying sequence uh where jake gyllenhaal's in that guy's basement um all of those scenes are so specifically scary in ways that are all very different and seem kind of random from each other. And like, what is so interesting about that to me is like, it kind of embodies the way that the Zodiac impacted people and the way that it was like, um, the way the killer themselves kind of stoked fear in the public in that like, there was a certain randomness to the crimes and they weren't all similar or at least the ones that were ascribed to the Zodiac, like again, the pattern changed on it. Um, so I think it's interesting that Fincher can kind of capture that in the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. This is some of Fincher's most intense, most suspenseful scenes. I like, I can pick out like two or three scenes, the, the, you know, the basement scene you mentioned and, the stabbings on the little, like, uh, whatever, Lake Berryessa, which I can never tell if it's mm-hmm. like, what is that? What kind of a environment is that? Is that a, uh, like a little island that they're on? Is that, cause that's a whole thing where it's a man made lake, right? That was, um, yes, something like and that. And that, and the space no longer right. exists there. So, like, that was one that they found a location and then apparently flew in like trees so that it could be as specific to the way the crime scene actually was because that's what Fincher wanted. One thing I want to bring up, and we can maybe talk a little bit about this in the awards season of, or like the awards possibilities for this movie. Um, Did you ever see that visual effects reel that I've talked to you about? I don't think so because I'm not entirely sure what you're talking about. I kind of think that this is a gold standard for like visual effects that is purely environment based because the cab scene one in particular that was all on a set they built that set and then all of the neighborhood stuff was green because the neighborhood wouldn't let them never tell right so there there's a whole ton of that especially in like altering yeah. the city of San Francisco throughout the movie. There's a couple shots in it that it's like, okay, this is at, by this point kind of crunchy, but there's whole it's, sequences in this that you may never yeah, for the most realize part. are VHS. Yeah. VS, VFX. If you hadn't seen this 
visual Ed effects. Fincher on this movie um, in particular was obsessed with getting details right. He he like there were full. Um, that's why you don't see the first Zodiac killings. You only see it start at the second Zodiac killings because uh, there were no living survivors or eyewitnesses of the first killing, and he only wanted to recreate killings where there were uh, like accounts of what happened because he wanted to be that faithful to the sort of accuracy of it. And he wanted to be faithful to the accuracy of the, the environments and where things took place. And very mm-hmm. few things were changed for um, sort of dramatic purposes. And the, the whole thing, the other thing that I was thinking about when you talk about like the look of the film, we talked about tadpole on this podcast a long time ago, and that was 2002, correct? 2000, mm-hmm. right? And so that was... One of the early films shot purely on digital, but that was when digital, like last week we talked about um, Soderbergh with Full Frontal, where it's like they're filming these movies on digital, but it looks like absolute garbage. That's sort of where I'm going with this. We're like, yeah, where that movie mm-hmm. we talked about, how terrible that movie looked. And I get that like the budgets of like Tadpole and Zodiac are like vastly different, but even you just look at the the how far digital video even when you look at a movie like collateral which i grant is a movie a lot of other people like better than i do and that one was at the time sort of a landmark for digital cinematography and that was 2004 Mm -hmm. and you look at just the three years between that and this like zodiac shot on digital with certain scenes on film certain whenever you see something in slow-mo apparently that is on film Mm -hmm. but this is largely digital cinematography and it looks fucking gorgeous like absolutely pristine stunning gorgeous stunning the filmmaking is fantastic you don't ever feel like fincher is limited in any way by shooting on digital and the only thing really the only sort of like negative consequence of filming in digital was the stories that had come out about how frustrated gyllenhaal and robert downey jr were with how many takes Fincher demanded, and he could demand that many takes because this is when they were that on reputation digital. begins. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, where Gyllenhaal had that article uh, in the Times, I want to say, where he was pretty frank and candid about how uh, his difficulties working with Fincher, while ultimately being like you know complimentary of him as an artist and a visionary, but still was just like we would go through ninety takes, and then he would just like randomly delete ten of them, like the last ten of them, by like pushing a button on the camera, as mm-hmm. you can. Do with you know digital and he talked about how sort of like demoralizing that was as an actor that you put all this work in and essentially what he was saying is just like i'm an actor i get paid to sort of make choices and go in directions and what fincher wants is 90 takes who he gets every possible iteration of what this is and then he can basically decide what your performance is and it's this very sort of like Mm -hmm. fascinating dynamic because i don't think either one of them is entirely wrong and i think ruffalo even had a quote later where he was just like look you sign on to a film you're signing on to this director's vision either you surrender yourself to that or you're sort of put yourself in for you know all this sort of like frustration and and heartache for yourself and so you can sort of see both sides and i think at the time gyllenhaal was kind of because gyllenhaal was still very young he was only a couple years removed from brokeback mountain which was kind of a milestone for him but he was still Mm -hmm. very much a young actor and a lot of people sort of like brush this off about just like ah the kid can't handle such an intense director but i really do feel like i can see both sides of that 
No, I agree. I mean, like, to keep going off of the, like, a million takes David Fincher thing and back to, like, the artistry of, like, what he creates with the level of meticulousness, like, it's interesting that, like, he kind of finally amasses that reputation or it starts to build when digital um, photography comes out um, for filming his movies because, yes, it's like, what was the the social network scene that opens the movie they did how many takes of that oh like a bajillion him at, at jesse eisenberg yeah, and yeah. something like over a hundred yeah. um and it's like that's kind of what david fincher is known for with his movies and it's like it's interesting for this movie because i think this is probably the only fincher movie we would ever be able to cover on this podcast so it's like that's one of the other things that we were saving this i feel movie like for. we can at some point do panic room See, I was going to bring this up later. Panic Room deserves a better reputation than it has, and certainly than it had at the time, because at the time it was like, oh, Fincher's just doing another violent movie. It's misanthropic and dark, and, like, even that has some, like, at the time, what was, like, visual effects, like, uh, audacity. Oh, yeah. Um. I think that movie deserves better, but, like, that was kind of seen just as schlock. But I I think once people saw it, yes. But I do feel like during the production phase of it and during the pre-release phase, people saw a Jodie Foster movie directed by uh, Finch, David Fincher, who at that point wasn't an Oscar director yet. And I'll sort of get into that mm-hmm. as we go along. Um, but was definitely, like, a name director who... Um, because of Seven and Fight Club, had this really really great reputation. And so I think there was an excitement over what Jodie Foster could do in that role. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do feel like there was a degree of buzz for that movie. Getting David Fincher's name closer to Oscar consideration, like, happened in stages over his career to where it's like, now probably everything that he makes will be in the conversation in some way. Like, he's earned that. Like, he got to the point where it's a... Girl with a Dragon Tattoo is a major Oscar nominee, probably very close to being a Best Picture nominee. Yes. And, like, that movie is about sexual torture yeah. and, like, Scandinavian violence. There's um, a th- and it's three hours long. There's a thing but like about that I love thinking about where that generation of turn-of-the-century directors, where it's, it's David Fincher, Darren Aronofsky... Alexander Payne, David O. Russell, Wes Anderson, that sort of group that sort of started off as these very kind of, had very sort of like culty early projects. You're talking about um, Fincher less culty, although he had like the music video pass, but like Aronofsky does Pie and Alexander Payne has um, like even Election, I guess. What was his movie before Election? Shit, I can never... Citizen yes, Ruth, really right, good Citizen movie. Ruth, Lord David amazing. O. Russell has um, flirting with disaster and, and to some degree spanking the monkey. Wes Anderson with Bottle Rocket. All of these um, sort of like very culty directors that slowly, you know, kept making these like masterpieces that for a while there couldn't get arrested with the Oscars, and they were the, the sort of like younger vanguard of. Uh, filmmaker, and then each one of them hits that breakthrough point with the Oscars. Fincher mm-hmm. with Social Network, Aronofsky with Black Swan, Payne with Sideways, David O. Russell with The Fighter, Wes Anderson with, finally, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. And then, from that point, 
uh, they become, they're like part of the club then. And so I think you look at like David O. Russell, especially Alexander Payne, especially were like, they can't make a movie now without it being a huge Oscar contender. And I think Fincher mm-hmm. is largely there. Although Fincher, you know, it sort of like goes back and forth, right? Where Fincher can make something that gets like gone girl that should get much more attention, but doesn't. So, you know, it can be a little like frustrating there about just like, what do you, what do you want from this guy? Don't you, isn't he basically in line to get an Oscar at some point? Don't we all feel like he was, you know, isn't the general sense that he was robbed for the social network. So you would get the sense that it's going to happen for him at some point. This is why, uh, mm-hmm. When I was on the Vanity Fair podcast back in the before times, when we were predicting the Oscars this year, <laughs> not knowing what the still not knowing what the Oscars are going to be this year, but um, his uh, Mank, the uh, the Mankowitz uh, yeah. biopic, which you have to imagine is going to be Netflix's big play. That was my this sense. Year. That was definitely my sense for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, they have a good slate this year. They have a new Charlie Kaufman movie. Um, They have some other things, but like that's probably what they're going to throw their money behind because like this narrative for David Fincher has to result in something eventually, right? Even though like there's a certain misanthropic bent to a lot of his movies, even like um, when you really look at Benjamin Button, it is a very um, sober kind of dark. Right. That was Fincher's breakthrough with Oscar. Our lives amount to and what death is. I misspoke. Um, I said his breakthrough which, was like, social network. It was de- it was Benjamin Button, obviously. Yes. Right, right, right. Um, but see, Benjamin Button in this movie are so interestingly tied to me. A because they're both Paramount movies, but these are the two movies that are so impacted by the ill health and death of his father. If you ever read interviews, with I him. haven't. So please, um, not me. in ways that he says explicitly. Um, more so about Benjamin Button, but like this one, he like tells the whole story about his dad when, because he grew up in, um, right. in and around where the Zodiac in Marin were. In Marine County, I want to say, right? Yeah. Um, and he has some story about his dad, like kind of brushing off what the Zodiac was. He's like, some man says that he's going to shoot kids. I do remember and, like, hearing how... the story that he was like surprisingly blunt about like, well, this guy's going to shoot the tires out of a bus and then he's going to pick off the kids as they're walking out. And he's saying this to like this young child, his son. And you can imagine that type of like blunt directness influencing Fincher's point of view as an entire filmmaker. Right? Well, you even see it in the, Zodiac, where like Gyllenhaal kind of like blithely allows his kid to watch this news report where they're talking about this, and is kind of like he's still like he eventually like turns the TV off, but like after he's done, you know, listening to this, he's not really taking pains to shield his kids. And then you see later on in the movie where he's got them helping him mm-hmm. with the investigation. So yeah, there are shades of that for sure. And, and they're both in their PJs. That seems Love that so scene. good. And like, um. The one thing I think about Fincher and like his trajectory, especially compared to those other filmmakers you brought up, is like movies, it all starts with a disaster for David Fincher, right? Because Alien 3 was seen as this unmitigated disaster, and there's since been a director's cut, and that movie's been reevaluated too. But it's like he has to get further and further away from that disaster to really be taken seriously and even seven is you know it's oscar nominated and all that but like maybe that's too it was too much for oscar at the time in terms of the grimness to really be taken on like a best picture director level seven was one of those movies that like 
critics really championed as like should be nominated for Oscar, but like it was never a true contender in the top categories in terms of like, mm-hmm. you know, even like Freeman for Best Actor, even though he was coming off of a Best Actor nomination for Shawshank. Obviously, like the directing was was so important. Obviously, that film came during the big kind of Kevin Spacey supporting actor year where he wins for the usual suspects, mm-hmm. but he's also in Outbreak and he's in Seven and and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's also treated more like a, or at least the public response to it is more like a horror movie than a procedural. Yes. Um, and even when this movie finally comes out, it is very much at least promoted in the vein of from the director of Seven. So it's like this is more influenced by all the president's men with those horrifying sequences yes. of the murders that are so scary. Even when they are... Um, interviewing Arthur Lee Allen for the first time, I would even include that scene among like some of the more terrifying ones because you don't quite know what the energy is in the room. Well, Um, the whole, the whole thing, the thing, the brilliant thing about the movie, one of the many brilliant, brilliant things about the movie is this sense of that. It is a movie about the terror of not knowing who the killer is and not and mm-hmm. not ever not ever being able to nail it down the whole thing about the zodiac investigation and the zodiac killer in culture is they never caught him like we you can say as the movie does that they were zeroing in on Arthur Lee Allen that they had this like mountain of like very strong circumstantial evidence but they never got him he had the, he had died of a heart attack before they were able to bring mm-hmm. him in that one last time and I think the movie infuses into so many of its scenes that kind of dread of not knowing. The killings at Lake Berryessa, where even like right before the guy stabs him, the guy's like, did you really, was that gun even loaded? Like that, that sense of you have to know. We got it. You, you, you know, that's what mm-hmm. obsesses Graysmith. That's what obsesses Paul Avery and sort of like sends him down as like lifetime of like essentially drinking and smoking himself to death. That's what obsesses Tosky. Like it's, they got they got to know they've even beyond being able to like prosecute him they just have to know the answer to this and that not knowing is what creates so much of the suspense of this movie and the uh, the flip side of that coin of you have to know who the killer is is that the killer's nature itself is random and the terror of it could happen at any minute it could be a completely different type of violence being enacted it could be in a completely different environment to completely different people um like that's the other side of it right like besides what we as the potential victims of this killer are experiencing and needing to have that certainty and with that certainty comes a feeling of safety the other side is like you have this person on the loose just like terrorizing the culture, right? Well, there's that great scene... I have a thread on this that I don't want to get into until we do a 60-second plot description. Well, just like, just very quickly bouncing off of what you were saying, though, because there's that great scene where uh, we're following the cab before the cab driver gets killed, right? Where we're following the cab Mm -hmm. from this, like, aerial shot, tracking it through these streets, and we're hearing radio sort of, like, talk shows talking about, because at this point, there's a there's a curfew in the bay area everybody's afraid of the zodiac and people are calling in and being like you know 
well, it's only it's only targeting young kids, young like uh, whatever young people, and this city is lousy with them. They're all over the hate, you know, fuck them essentially. And this other person's like, hey, we've got nice clean cut people in the North Bay, and don't lump us all in with that. And everybody in the hate is all Satanists anyway, and maybe the killer's a Satanist and all this. But all of that is is intended to just be like people trying mm-hmm. to find comfort in this idea of like, is he killing people? like me is it killing people like people that i know or is there some safety in this idea of he's not killing you know i'm safe he's killing other types of people and i think you it's crucial that you see that right before he kills the cab driver because that's the pattern breaker Mm -hmm. right because it's like these like lovers lame killings or whatever and then he kills the cab driver and then he kills uh or tries to kill the single mother with uh, the the baby in the car, which is the most terrifying scene. Um, Ioni Sky, by the way, uncredited in the movie as the young mother there. Ioni Sky, the daughter of Donovan, who sings "Hurdy Gurdy Man," which is still it's the song that's played at the beginning it's and the end of the movie. Goddamn scary! It's so goddamn scary. Um, like the movie. Oh, there's so many great things about this movie. I really, I could go on all day. This is gonna be like a five hour podcast of me talking about how much yeah. I love Zodiac. Buckle up, kids. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the uh, maybe we shouldn't go into the like the mother with her baby. Scene. Well, at some point, Just, you're going to have to make yeah, me do it's... a sixty second plot description. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, I mean, yes. Um, yeah. Well, let's just go ahead. It. We'll jump into the sixty second plot description since we're dissecting individual murder scenes already. Yeah. Joseph, yes. are you ready to fit the two hours and 40 minutes plus of Zodiac into 60 Yeah, seconds? why don't you run down the movie stats first and then uh, I'll Yes, prep. of course. As we mentioned, the film is directed by David Fincher, written by James Vanderbilt. Uh, shout out to our Truth episode and his directorial debut. It's based on the nonfiction book from Robert Graysmith, who is played in the film by Jake Gyllenhaal. We also have Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr., a slew of other bit players like Anthony Edwards, John Carroll Lynch, Brian Cox, who we mentioned, Dermot Mulroney, who maybe gets the most screwed in the movie uh-huh. um, in terms of like screen time and um, valuable importance to yeah. the plot. Um, Chloe Sevigny, Elias Codius, Donald Logue, Philip Baker Hall for like two scenes, and like the meme going around of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood pointing at the TV <laughs> screen. That was me watching Philip Baker Hall. I love Philip Baker Hall. Yeah. Uh, Clea Duvall in a scene. Maybe everybody in this movie. It's a is character that actor meme. paradise. It truly is. When Jimmy Simpson yeah. shows up at the end, uncredited again as the older version of that first. Uh, uh, guy who got shot was the best older casting ever where it's like someone ages yeah. and you got two different actors and you couldn't get two better because the first one is the to... dork from one tree hill and mm-hmm. who i've never seen in anything else i think he was also maybe on boy meets world but i was a little too old for boy meets world so whatever anyway and then it's Jenny, Jimmy Simpson. Yeah, it's Jimmy Simpson. It's fantastic. Movie opened wide the first weekend of March in 2007 after being delayed from the previous year. We will get into that. Yes. Joseph. Yes. Are you ready for your 60-second plot description? I mean, ready as I'll ever be, yeah. 
All right. Well, your 60-second plot description of David Fincher's Zodiac starts now. Okay, it's the 4th of July in 1969 in the San Francisco Bay Area. Two young lovers are shot in their car on a secluded road by a killer who then calls in the incident to the police and takes credit for that and an earlier double homicide in the area. This is followed by a double stabbing at of another young couple at Lake Berryessa. The San Francisco Chronicle newspaper begins to receive letters from someone claiming responsibility for the murders, calling himself the Zodiac. The letters are accompanied by a cipher, uh, which a bunch people try and decode it draws the attention of cartoonist and puzzle dork jake gyllenhaal who begins following the case closely via his colleague robert downey jr at the same time uh homicide detectives mark ruffalo and anthony edwards begin working the case which ends up going on for like years and years ending in all sorts of dead ends circumstantial evidence piles up like crazy there's handwriting there's the killer's birthday there's the most dangerous game the short story more than once they zero in on arthur lee allen as a suspect but when you start to think they've got him the movie ends and we find out alan had a fatal heart attack before they could bring him in and the whole thing ends with the question mark who was the zodiac that's time (sighs) does it end with the question who is the zodiac because i feel like this movie and fincher are fairly the movie is that it was arthur lee allen the movie is but the movie also basically like sets you on a path to wikipedia and sends you down all these like rabbit holes if you watch this movie (laughs) and don't end up going on wikipedia and looking anything up i don't understand you because like there's so much where you're just like was this thing was this the case and even in the postscript they talk about how dna evidence didn't match uh arthur lee allen the movie continually is like the handwriting samples do not match and there's even, uh, not in the postscript of the movie, but if you look it up on Wikipedia, Toski at some point later, later on, was like, yeah, it didn't end up, uh, the evidence didn't end up uh, indicating Arthur Lee Allen. The actual, like, non-circumstantial evidence. Because, like, mm-hmm. this movie is, it'll drive you crazy how many, it's not quite loose ends, but how many sort of, like, different fragments of circumstantial evidence that there is. That's what I think is the, that's what takes up pretty much the bulk of the middle of the movie once you get past those Mm -hmm. early murder scenes and then before you get into the sort of like last half hour where gyllenhaal is like really like down the rabbit hole and he ends up in the basement of uh the roger rabbit guy's house and then ends up uh encountering arthur lee allen at an ace hardware nice product placement there ace hardware i'm sure they (laughs) loved that um i guess any port in a storm right but like the middle of the movie is all of this we're just like they're following the handwriting samples the scene where they talk to brian cox's um uh housekeeper who mentions that uh that the zodiac had called one time and mentioned that it was his birthday and sort of like figuring out well now we've got the killer's birthday and you know who was doing the handwriting on the posters for the most dangerous game at the local repertory theater and all of this stuff and it's amazing it's not quite you're not quite seeing them put together an airtight case because that's the thing it was never they were never able to put together an airtight case but what it is is they're following all of these like uh sort of like different strands down different ends and one leads them to clea duval in the jail interview and one leads them to again that guy's basement and at one point um what was the Rick suspect's uh, last name? Rick something that like Hall was certain 
who it was, the guy who mm-hmm. he thought did the handwriting on the poster. And Clea Duvall's the one that points him towards Arthur Lee Allen. Right, right. Who, who at that point we had kind of let go of for the last half hour. And that's why mm-hmm. that scene's so great is when Clea Duvall is like, his name is Lee. And then like your blood sort of like rushes out of your body and you're just like, holy shit. He was right there. And that's like the thing you couldn't place in that scene where it's like, you know, something is wrong, but you cannot say with certainty what it is that is wrong and scary yep. about that interrogation. And all of this procedural stuff that you're describing, because it is probably a solid two hours of just yeah procedure and investigation that doesn't lead to a conclusive end all of it becomes like the search for the answer becomes an existential one yes um because fincher is so smart (laughs) um about like what it means on just like a personal level to find this not just for these individual individual characters we're following across different industries, but also just for like the societal need to under to know who this person is that committed all of this. But also what Fincher is so smart about is the kind of chaos that ensues with, it's like this kind of snowball effect, right? Where it's also reasonable to understand that all of these murders or all of these allegations or the contact that was made was not made by one person, but mm. they weren't necessarily in cahoots. Right. It could be a lot of people claiming that it is the Zodiac killer. So it's like, yes, one well, use movie is very smart to like have its own idea of who did it, I think, but also say it probably all wasn't this person and it was other people either making shit up or like the mass hysteria driving, yes. you know, unwell people to think that they are this person and um, the, or claim. The suspicion sort of like, you know, and takes over everything too, where you see at different points in the movie, people say, well, I think Paul Avery is really the uh, the, the killer, the, the Robert Downey Jr. character. At one mm-hmm. point, Dave Toski is accused of writing one of the Zodiac letters as a forgery. And there's all this sort of... Um, which these sort of like, you know, had to have, you know, you've seen, seen certain certain things in movies where you're just like, oh, that had to be true. That detail had to be true because you wouldn't put it in a movie unless it was true. The, the mm-hmm. detail about Toski writing himself, writing fan letters to Armistead Maupin about a character <laughs> in his column that was based on Toski and uh, his wife played wonderfully by June Day and Raphael. I'm pretty sure this is her first movie. Um, in fact, I interviewed her one time and she talked about that and she was just like, what an intense like frying pan into the fire thing where your first movie is David Fincher. Um, He's a Fincher but she's movie. on the phone with Graysmith and she's just like, he sent him some fan letters. It was basically him like writing fan letters to himself. It was a thing he was sort of amused by. She's like, he's not the Zodiac. But like her trying to explain this in such like obvious matter of fact terms. And I'm just like, that's a wild thing to do. Sometimes you just have to throw your hands up with this movie and be like, it's just fucking perfect, man. It is. I think to bring it back a little bit to like the Fincher and the trajectory of it, this is... I mean, we can debate uh, Panic Room a little bit, but, like, Paramount had the plan to have an Oscar campaign for this movie when it was supposed to be in 2006. Um, So it's like, it feels like Fincher was constantly inching towards being a real Oscar player to now the point where, like we mentioned, they they will all be 
in that type of consideration unless he goes and makes some type of like he goes back and makes seven and knocks it out to the nth degree where it's just like too extreme or something or he makes like a movie with madonna or something because he made all of those madonna music videos something anything anyway what i'm saying trying to get at is that this to me feels so much like the definitive David Fincher movie and I think except for maybe like a few cinasts or that it it gets overlooked a lot in terms of what is the movie that defines him as a filmmaker yeah and I think it's this I think you're me because of the level of meticulousness the kind of idea this like modern Hitchcockian idea where it's like the movie sure is a procedural but does like get at something it does have themes of like how we are as a society buried into it too um I think you're right I think for me it's always so impossible to not view Fincher the sort of like essential Fincher as a continuum from seven to fight club to zodiac to social network but like I do get especially like where zodiac occurs on that timeline where it's really in the middle and you really get mm-hmm. that sense of like it's the it's the perfect melding of like that early very stylistic seven fight club sort of sense of fincher almost you know he really had something to prove in those movies he was making the leap from music mm-hmm. videos he was bringing a lot of that music video aesthetic two uh, movies i remember seven remember the overlap between the seven opening credits and garbage's stupid girl video that he i'm pretty sure <laughs> wait no he didn't direct that i think that might have been Sam i don't Robert. i think that's a romanic video it's one of the no. big mu- music video directors and i'm gonna look this up in a second yeah. but um but like that was such the style at the time but you could like that was very much fincher bringing what was very much in vogue in music video style to something like seven and i remember and the opening credits of fight club are the same way where it's the sort of like you're racing through these like synapses and nerve endings right and, uh, at the mm-hmm. beginning of fight club and both of those things i remember being that you know you're right at the beginning of the movie and he's basically like putting his stamp on this and it's just like this is the fincher aesthetic and i think when you get to zodiac you still get the fincher aesthetic but it's much more elegant it's much more um not controlled but i think it's and again and the zodiac subject matter is less kind of like wild than the subject matter in seven and fight club so it's like Mm -hmm. it made sense in all of those senses i don't think he was going overboard in those earlier movies but i definitely feel feel like by the time you get to zodiac it's a much more assured fincher and he doesn't feel Mm -hmm. like he's trying to uh basically like argue for his own existence in this movie the way he is in those other movies and i think that then transitions him into benjamin button which is you know some people like it some people don't but then like social network gone girl that kind of like you know later era fincher your point about the like fight club seven fincher aesthetic i think it made audiences unprepared for what this movie was because it was promoted as another serial killer movie from david fincher and you're expecting it to be seven and like this is one of fincher's least successful movies i think it is his lowest grosser yeah it was only made 33 million dollars so disappointing that this movie didn't make a lot of money um and i think i mean like at the time it felt like it was being pinned on the length of the movie 
but I also think it's just like it's not at all what people were expecting it to be like or at least wide audiences like it never this movie never had a problem with critics um, no it, what one thing I always find a little interesting about seven because seven comes out in obviously the spring of 2000 or not seven uh, zodiac Jesus Christ sorry the thing about zodiac. <laughs> is when it comes out in the spring of 2007, one of the movies that I tend to tie it to, because 2000, early 2007 was when I was essentially preparing for my move to New York City. So like 2007 for me is very much divided between the movies that I saw before I moved out to the movies that I saw after I got to New York. And one of the movies that I always tie Zodiac to in that era was 300. 300 is a success mm-hmm. in that time frame. And 300 is very much... Uh, style forward, like orgy, uh, like li- literal in some ways, orgy of sort of aesthetics. It opened a week after Zodiac did. Right. And like that was, and to see the sort of like disparity between which one's the success and which one is uh, at least a financial failure, um, sort of dispiriting. I was never a fan of 300 and like increasingly less enchanted with it as sort of time had passed. Um, it was just a bummer to and me. At the time, 300 was, like, such an outsized, unexpected hit in a way yeah. that, like, it sucked all the air out of the room that other movies, like, just kind of went away. And that was another that, one. Like, at the moment that that movie opened. Yeah. But it's very interesting because Zack Snyder then becomes, at that moment, basically, what Fincher had been in the mid to late 90s which was mm-hmm. the the director who was all about aesthetics. I think 300 was the movie that allowed you to get that obnoxious uh, moment in the Watchmen trailer where it says from, you know, visionary director Zack Snyder. And everybody sort of just, like, recoiled at the, you know, using that term visionary. But that's because 300 was, like, aesthetics of the movie, essentially. Yeah. So, and yeah. I think that's what Fincher was, from the... Aesthetics and testosterone. Yeah, movie. and I think that's very much what that early Fincher fan base was, and I think Zodiac is a crucial movie to tempering that. I think, ultimately, I mean, whatever, I twist my arm and I'll get into a discussion about Fight Club, about how Fight Club <laughs> is a misinterpreted movie, and the people who do the misinterpreting, do the film its most, its biggest disservice because it convinces other people who are not like, you know, testosterone edgelords will sort of like blanch at that movie now because they feel like that movie is catering to those people when really that movie is uh, an argument against that and uh, people don't... No, it's making fun of those people. Um, It's a widely misinterpreted movie. Um, Yeah. I feel the same way about the Dark Knight right now, where yes. like, people don't want to touch the Dark Knight um, because Nolan of the fan base, is is the Nolan loud is uniquely ill suited or ill served by his biggest fans. I think he's one of those directors yeah. for sure. And Fincher can be that way. Yeah, I think sometime. less so. I think and, uh, some of it's Fight Club. I think Benjamin Button broke a lot of that. I think making something like Gone Girl broke a lot of that. Social Network too, even like I think. Basically, Zodiac on, it's harder for the sort of, like, Fight Club edgelord people to really claim Fincher as much of their own as they want to. And Mm. it's still kind of, like, Fincher's obviously still a huge favorite among, like, film bro people who, like, whatever. I don't tend to use that term as much because it does 
it unnecessarily kind of like balkanizes film fans and whatever um just because most of fincher's fans are male doesn't mean he's bad and doesn't mean they're bad but there is just a certain subset of discussion i would like at least say a way that a group of people discuss movies yeah i think is accurate yeah uh, but anyway, I love the him. The thing about Fincher, though, like, that kind of, I don't want to say nullifies that part of his fan base, but, like, that makes it interesting that some people gravitate towards him is that he's actually a really interesting director who is, like, kind of constantly um, unpacking and skewering masculinity because, like, obvi- Fight Club is the obvious one. I think Gone Girl does it to a certain extent with how Ben Affleck's character is played. But even Zodiac, like, gets a lot of its humor from, like, kind of you know putting it in the ribs of all of these men and their male behavior because everyone is basically a boy child in this movie yeah um to the larger sense where it's like at the end of the day all of us can like try to be composed in public life but we're all terrified at some point in our life you know and that's going to revert us to children but like Mark Ruffalo with the Animal Crackers. Jake Gyllenhaal is constantly referred to as a Boy Scout. Um, Every single time Chloe Sevigny walks into frame in this movie is so funny to me because she's like, she'll just walk into frame and look at Gyllenhaal and just like that sense of just like, still like there there are points in the movie where kind she's genuinely unfurls him just by existing right and it's like this movie did get some criticism for being so male but i think chloe sevigny is actually employed very well in this movie that it's this. like yeah it's that very thing where it's just like just her being there dismantles him and david fincher is aware of that and is using that as a commentary she's not depicted as a nagging wife in in the way that you would think of in other movies she's um critical of him but it's not in this kind of like naggy abrasive way she just sort of like again she'll like walk into frame regard him and then just sort of like walk out and ultimately she leaves him and you can see why i don't think the movie ever yeah we don't argue with it right exactly yeah God, this cast in this movie is so well deployed. I think, you know, Sevigny, Clea Duval, there are definitely, like, women in this movie who are fantastic, but it is also, like, male character actor Valhalla, where it's, like, from the top, where it's just, like, your Brian Cox's, uh, John Carroll Lynch, Philip Baker Hall, the ones who are just, like, the featured character actors, but, like, down to, like, the guy who played Jack's father in Lost, the guy who played the sort of skeezy businessman in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Um, James LaGrosse. James LaGrosse <laughs> at the very end of the movie. Elias Cotias, like you said. Um, Donald Logue will show up. And, um, oh, uh, the, the dad from American Dreams, who was on uh, How to mm-hmm. Get Away with Murder. Oh, the guy who plays Edward Norton's boss in Fight Club, who eventually then went on to be in The yes. Good Wife, was so good um, in The Good Wife, Zachary The one Gay. who came off the best from this movie, I think, is honestly John Carroll Lynch, because John oh, Carroll oh, yeah. Lynch is incredible in this incredible. movie. And, like, you can kind of see him taking off from being a bit player after this movie to actually getting supporting roles in a lot of, like, independent movies. Like, even if it's something like... Uh, 
private life because he's Molly Shannon's husband in private life. And yes, he, like gets several scenes and he's very. He funny goes into Russ and Daughters um, and uh, and uh, gets the Bialys and the <laughs> and the salmon. What is it? It's like yeah. a eighth of a pound, or what's the joke? It's so good. half a uh, half God of a quarter bless of a pound. Jenkins. <laughs> yeah, it's so yeah good. half a quarter of a pound. Uh, it's so funny. Uh, also, all the above line actors we should say are all i think doing some of their best work that never gets mentioned as some of their best work the oh Jill you're Hall, talking about downey jr ruffalo yes. triumvirate i even love that they get the billing where it's like that old 70s triangular style formation where, yes where it's like we have to contractually give prominence equal prominence to all of them somehow somehow so we'll just and make so a triangle of it names. becomes a, a, a design challenge you know what i mean and like some sort of yeah. like uh, <laughs> that would be a fascinating like bravo reality show is like top poster designer and it's like here is your brief here is the contract here is whose names has to be where here's the with and the and and like figure it out um i would Who's watch the with and of this of movie that. i don't think it has a with and but like who would you give the with and to i would say with chloe 70 and brian cox i was gonna say brian cox is absolutely your and in this movie 100 percent. i think with chloe 70 probably so makes a lot of sense absolutely um uh did you had if you, you heard the jennifer aniston angle to this the, to the casting no. of this movie so obviously fincher has had at this point made two movies with Brad Pitt and was gearing up to make a third with Benjamin Button. Um, so Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston are together at this point in time. Wait, no, had been together. Um, but as you can see where like, you can assume that Fincher got to know Jennifer Aniston via this relationship he had with Brad Pitt. Anyway, was talking to Jennifer Aniston about casting Zodiac and she floated both Hall and Mark Ruffalo because she had worked with Hall on The Good Girl and she had worked with Mark Ruffalo on Rumor Has It, which is the one good thing to ever come out of Rumor Has It, is Mark <laughs> Ruffalo getting cast in Zodiac. Like, everything really, truly does happen for a reason. And also Jennifer Aniston, linchpin in history. Like, absolutely for sure. But yeah, they're so that, fantastic. I did not know that, but that's amazing. I, I remember at the time being very, very high on the idea of Ruffalo and Downey Jr. should both be supporting actor contenders this year. And the fact that they weren't... And I know Ruffalo is like quasi-lead, but like it's very easy to sort of slot Hall as your lead and then Ruffalo and Downey Jr. I originally was with Ruffalo being a lead, but like I've come more to him being supporting. And I think that's... Even though he's kind of leading all of his narrative portion of the movie, yeah. he's like still sharing the screen with a lot of people, whereas the Hall stuff is just Jake Gyllenhaal. And this was still at the point where neither one of them had ever been nominated for an Oscar, and it was people were getting sort of like... Well, Gyllenhaal had. No, Ruffalo and Downey Jr. is who I'm talking about, though. Um, Downey Jr. had. No. Oh, right, Chaplin. I always forget Chaplin. Chaplin. Yeah. But Chaplin happened, well, and then his like, career this is so it really yes. does feel like, I think, you know... There's been several stages of Robert Downey Jr. comebacks, and this was the very beginning of one. This comes out the year before Iron Man. Well, and the year and before Tropic like, Thunder as well. Like, 2008 was the big uh-huh. Downey Jr. Finally, he's back. And this movie, I think, is a crucial stepping stone to that. And it should be the, in my opinion, like, I think it's his best performance. Like, it's very... He's so good. The Tony Stark thing, I remember when I first saw Iron Man, I was like, this is just like a lesser version or like a popcorn version of everything he's doing in Zodiac, and he's doing it so much better in Zodiac. Um, But yeah, like, I think this especially gets forgotten for Robert Downey Jr., and you can see why. 
um, because of the monolith that is the MCU that begins the very next year. Yeah. Um, but I think this, I think of the many reasons why I'm bummed that Zodiac was sort of like removed from awards consideration. You mentioned the fact that it was being lined up for an Oscar run at the end of 2006, largely because of its running time. Paramount wanted him to recut it, but he had final cut. So I think there was a lot of wrangling. It ultimately gets taken out of the 2006 schedule, which is really a bummer because 2006 Oscar race was wide fucking open. And I really do feel like... It absolutely could have cracked 2006. Absolutely could have. And... Then all of a sudden, I mean, and this movie, the length of this movie had been sort of at issue for a lot since it's essentially its inception. Rob, uh, James Vanderbilt uh, reportedly had turned in a 200 page script to Fincher, and Fincher then mm-hmm. had to, you know, cut things out before they even started filming. And then uh, Paramount was uh, it apparently lays the ground for like what it. he and eventually so- does with another huge screenplay of the social network where he's like, no, right. this is, this is this running time of this movie. People will just need to talk right. fast. And then, so it gets released in March. March is of course, you know, with certain exceptions over the years, but March is not fertile Oscar ground. And because it then drops in March and then doesn't make any money, it's very easily just sort of like brushed aside and they move on to the new year. But I think the acting performances in this movie from Gyllenhaal, Ruffalo, Downey Jr. especially. I mean, you can talk about how great Brian Cox and John Carroll Lynch are and all these other people, but, like, those roles are essentially too small and cameo-ish, you know, to be Mm -hmm. supporting actor contenders when you've got these big stars in supporting roles. Um, I do think you could consider John Carroll Lynch. I mean, John Carroll Lynch would probably make... He might make my ballot for this, but then again, you're not making probably three performances. I think it's... Yeah. I think it's. I just think it's I think unrealistic to have expected the Oscars for to, Oscar. Sure, sure. Yeah. Maybe if it was John Carroll Lynch now. The other thing about Jake Gyllenhaal is he's coming off of the Brokeback Mountain nomination. Yes, but again, he's still viewed as this sort of like vanguard of young Hollywood and 2007 mm-hmm. at the Oscars in particular. I think I mentioned this. Um, we what were we talking about recently about 07? Well, we also did Jake Gyllenhaal in 07 for rendition, um, but yeah. we've also talked Jake Gyllenhaal when we did Love and Other Drugs. But this but I, is at I, least the first release after his nomination, which, like, especially for a younger actor, is going to come with a very show-me attitude, I think. Well, and uh, but I, I remember we talked, uh, whatever reason we ended up talking about the 07 Best Actor race, but I that was a year where the sort of, like, the youth contingent in Hollywood was given like an across the board snub where like Ryan Gosling had mm-hmm. been in precursors. He doesn't get nominated for Lars and the real girl. Emil Hirsch doesn't get nominated for into the woods. That movie kind of gets like snubbed almost across the board, except the for wild. Hal Holbrook, the old man. What did I say? Into the woods. I do this all the time <laughs> yeah. into the wild. Emil Hirsch could totally be an into the woods. Sean so Penn's that, into that the woods is, is the thing I'm, Maybe Sean Penn's Into the Woods. <laughs> Could you imagine no, Sean no, Penn I can't. trying to do Sondheim I go can't, to jail? I can't. Uh, <laughs> is that my uh, hair as yellow as corn in there? That's just, that's all I can think of. Um, it's like um, Jack Nicholson screaming into a grave or something. <laughs> anyway, Into the Wild, uh, Emil Hirsch doesn't get nominated. Um, Paul Dano doesn't get nominated for There Will Be Blood, even though they clearly like flipped shit over There Will Be Blood. 
Um, I'll never understand nothing happening for Paul Dano for that movie. It's very and I know strange. some people think he's bad, but it's, they're wrong. It's, it's a re- I, here's the thing. It's a repulsive character by its intent, and he does very well with it. He really, really, um, I think, does a phenomenal job with it. But I think he does it so well that even people who loved There Will Be Blood were just like, oh, God, Eli Sunday. And it's just like... Yeah. Um, yeah, but, like, that's what you wanted out of that. And so I just think it's very interesting that, like, they loved that movie so much but didn't go for um, that supporting performance. Anyway, what I'm saying is I think Hall for Zodiac you could put right in that lineup of just, like, they went for Tommy Lee Jones in The Valley of Ella and they went for Hal Holbrook in Into the Wild. And um, I don't know. Not not exclusively old people, obviously, but like even Vigo Mortensen. What's Vigo Mortensen's thing is that like he's older than you think, ladies and gentlemen. Like Vigo Mortensen at this point, I think is ninety seven <laughs> years old, and he just looks like four, uh, eternally forty nine. Is sort of Vigo Mortensen's <laughs> vibe. Um, he's been forty nine years old since uh, forever. Nineteen ninety five. Um, can we talk about Mark Ruffalo in this movie? Uh, go ahead, because uh, everything that I want to say, you are going to say, but with more lust in your heart, so go for it. He's so handsome. He really is. He truly is, in those bow ties and the 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 patented shoulder holster that, again, Steve McQueen stole for his look in Bullet. Like, um, Fully the shoulder, the gun holster looks like a gay harness. Um and his little bow tie. He was way ahead of the like the, the red carpet fashions at the time, truly. Yeah, absolutely. Like Timothy Chalamet got it from Zodiac. Um I don't know. I also think that this for me is Mark Ruffalo's best performance. I think he is channeling Peter Falk. I think and that's not just like the curly haired, moppish kind of like over it attitude of all like everything that he deals with in this movie. Yeah. But I don't know. I think we've talked about this before where it's like a star quality or a watchability that often goes very underrated. Um, And I think Mark Ruffalo has it in like uh, just pouring out of his wonderful curly locks in this movie. (laughs) I love it. And it should have been rewarded. Truly. And like, yeah, he doesn't get his nomination until the kids are all right a few years after then. I wonder... I mean, like, yes, he would have had, like, a category confusion thing that I think made him not ever really register on anybody's radar. But, like, of the missed opportunities for this movie to be nominated for an Oscar, to me, it is Mark Ruffalo and visual effects. I think it's Mark Ruffalo, it's visual effects, I think it's Harris Savitas and the cinematography, which is stunning. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, for sure. Uh, That shot, I mean, so many of them. All of those aerial shots, though. The one over San Francisco Bay, when you see the sign that says Port of San Francisco. The very beginning of the movie, where you see the fireworks over the bay. Um, Mm -hmm. That shot that follows that shot of the fireworks, where... The tracking shot through the the neighborhood. The tracking shot through the neighborhood, when you're looking out the window of the car stunning yeah because it's upsetting yes but it is not it's voyeuristic but fully upsetting yes. like you and it ends up being the car that the girl is the driving, victim right so the vi- it's like yes. you have this displacement of like violence could be anywhere it's truly lurking anywhere yes. uh the shot of the golden gate bridge and the fog from overhead which mm-hmm. i have to imagine is 
significantly visual effects, but like stunning, utterly stunning. Yeah. Um, the even some like simpler images that are just shot so well that they're more effective. I think of that basement scene. It really kind of caught me off guard this time when Jake Gyllenhaal's like, "I need to go," and then the coded gay man turns off the light and it makes it completely black so that you can't see him so it's like you don't even see this shadowy figure it goes to like this pitch black where he was standing that scene and like you don't know if he's gonna emerge from it with a gun or a knife or a demon there are two scenes in the movie that i think are the signature scenes in the movie one is the lake Berryessa killing which uh Uh terrifies me um the that one was essentially not parodied, but, like, recreated almost entirely with John Carroll Lynch in um, American Horror Story, whatever, Freak Show, with the the season with where uh, John Carroll Lynch plays mm-hmm. the clown, the murdering clown. Uh, essentially, they just, like, recreated that scene shot for shot because they just, you know, thought it was so fantastic, and it it's is. It's that upsetting. The basement scene, though, Charles Fleischer plays the, the creepy movie theater sort of... Uh, former manager i guess owner whatever um charles fleischer of course the voice of roger rabbit from who framed roger rabbit uh essentially a a voice actor but you know is also one of those recognizable faces that you've seen him in enough character actor roles that whatever um initially presents in that scene as this sort of like kindly old man because essentially he's a witness he's he's gray smith wants him to uh provide he had been an a, uh, acquaintance of this person that Graysmith thinks is the Zodiac, and he apparently had gotten this like canister from him and told not to open it, and did he still have it, and yada yada. And then at the point where Graysmith is just like, oh, we think this is the guy because of the handwriting on this poster, and Charles Fleischer just goes like, very matter-of-factly, is just like, he didn't do the handwriting, all of that handwriting is mine. And he says this after Graysmith has basically said, we think this handwriting matches the Zodiac. So he's not gonna fess up to, and he fesses up to this at the most matter-of-fact way, and then at that instant, again. And then he's like, let's go in my basement. The blood fully vacates your body. You absolutely just go white <laughs> as a sheet as a, as a viewer. And then Gyllenhaal is like lured down to the basement. And again, it's this boyishness of Gyllenhaal plays so well into this because essentially he's like this kid who followed the boogeyman down into the basement. And he's constantly looking for an exit. He's constantly hearing creaking upstairs and like what's going on it's the most like classic there's so much of this movie that feels classic to the point where you want to say hitchcocky and even though that is talk about like overused adjectives in film criticism Mm -hmm. but like there are points in this movie where that's all you can think of because it's just like it's such classic elemental unsettling where it's like it's not even horror it's just like terror right it's it's not Mm -hmm. this it's not uh, bloody, but it's so visceral. It's like literally coursing through your veins, visceral. It's ugh. it's also like the one of the the things that makes it so upsetting is like, is it somewhat interpretive too? Because like I read that scene and like we experience it through. But I've watched this movie so many times. Yeah, we experience it through Jake Gyllenhaal and that we're like terrified, but like. This movie inspires you to kind of, like, pick it apart because it's a movie about picking apart details. And, like, I watch that scene now and I'm like, oh, that guy is not related to these killings at all. This is a gay man who thinks he's about to have sex with Jake Gyllenhaal. 
that is a that like, is a soon fantastic as... read of that scene, and I do, and I don't always think of it that way, but like you're right. That's why he locks the doors because that generation of homosexual man yeah. would have done that for safety, and like that's what that person thinks is happening. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal is experiencing something totally different, and like that just contributes to the air of suspicion yes. and it's also everything that like David Fincher is trying to capture in what was going on in the culture at the time. There are so many scenes in this movie or at least a handful where uh, people are being interrogated slash interviewed whatever for what they know about the case and halfway through the discussion they click onto why they're being asked about this. The Arthur Lee Allen scene mm-hmm. where he clicks on the fact that the most dangerous game is the reason why they're talking to him because he knows that Mm -hmm. that was a detail in the Zodiac cipher. And he knows that he had spoken to um, this one friend of his about that story. And again, all of this evidence about Arthur Leon, the fact that they like talk to his brother and his brother and his brother's wife who are basically just like, yeah, he seems like the kind of person who would kill some people. (laughs) And, (laughs) <laughs> they have all this sort of just like they mentioned the way he spells Christmas is um, with two S's at the end. Christ, Christ mass. mass. And again, that's another piece of the circumstantial evidence that piles up. And I, 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 I'm gushing about this movie and I'm sort of – this is why one of the – I'm reticent to do – movies that we feel are too good for Oscar on this movie. This is the my this is my whole thing with like not wanting the movies that are led by like critical can critical uh um appraisal right. for Oscar this is, versus this is, like where they really campaigned or This was my reticence for Widows initially was just sort of like I don't want to turn this into um movies we wish the Oscars would have gone for because like it's a slightly different Mm -hmm. thing I always use Under the Skin as an example for this we're just like I think Under the Skin's a perfect example for what we're Under the Skin is a fantastic movie and should have been nominated for everything Under the Sun it was never going to be an Oscar title for a billion different reasons I think Zodiac fits under our umbrella kind of just barely there was there's definitely um angles to this where like it was well they still thwarted ambition not as rigorously as they could have yes but like and it goes back to the running time thing because like especially yeah all of the screeners that they sent out in 2007 were the director's cut too it wasn't the theatrical version oh interesting which is like it has like five minutes more to it and it has this um fully like oral sequence where it's just like pitch black screen and you get the progression of time through a radio oh um, right i remember reading about that 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 was yeah a thing and there's a there's a couple other things in there too but that's like the big one such a that good soundtrack been. in this movie like oh we talked God, about so donovan's specific. hurdy-gurdy man but um wait now i want to bring up the soundtrack tab on the imdb opens with easy to be hard yes three dog night yes um which Fincher saw as like definitive of what that summer was for him, or at least his memory of it. But like, it's also perfect because you get the hair reference later when you see the poster in the background, but it's also like, that's a easy to be hard. And especially hair too is like vibrancy and like beautiful. That's like a big, one of the big ballads in the show. And like this version, especially the way it's employed in the movie is so creepy 
Where it's like you're kind of adjusting to the sound of it. Yep. I guess. And Maybe also, what's, uh, Crystal Blue versions. Persuasion, I think, is deployed really, really fantastic in this movie. Uh, Tommy James and the Shondells uh, song. But there's just... There are times when this movie reminded me of the soundtrack to Moonlight, which doesn't doesn't employ mm. it the same way, but it has that sort of um, 60s, 70s soul music that feels wallpapery to like stuff of that era but if you like really listen to it mm-hmm. it's i mean you've got marvin gay here you've got um as you mentioned three dog night there's i think at some point i think i heard a johnny mathis thing like there's so much um i don't know it's it's very recognizable music but not necessarily like um earworms of the era or not or it's mm-hmm. it's very much not a Forrest Gump approach, which is interesting because Forrest it's Gump also, also had a Three like, Dog Night song and their soundtrack, but like, yeah. it's different. <laughs> well, it's also music that feels like it is m- interpretable differently in different contexts too, just like that basement yes. scene that I mentioned where it's like, Easy to be hard is like this romantic ballad. So it's like you play it in a like 4th of July scene in a different movie and it has a completely different feel than what David Fincher is capturing here. Where it's like some of these songs have like an air of danger to them the way that they're contextualized in the movie or like it seems like they might be, you know, horny songs, but then they could be violent songs at the same time, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, I just... I sometimes get embarrassed about gushing about a movie like this, but like truly I, the other thing that I think is interesting and not surprising, but definitely like notable is if you look at its awards tab on IMDb, you get a lot of instances where it ends up on a best of the decade list from an organization Mm -hmm. that didn't put it on its best of 2007 list, which makes perfect sense because this is absolutely a movie whose reputation has only grown and grown and grown in uh in the ensuing years where at the time you might have seen critics be like you know what was a really great movie this year and overlooked was zodiac and then by the end of that decade Mm -hmm. only three years later people are just like nope top 10 of the decade maybe top five of the decade one of the best movies that we've got of this century like all of those things are true um but it was a movie that took a little bit for people to sort of get that drumbeat rolling it definitely was not a movie that was able to attain that sense by the end of 2007 yeah and i think i mean some of that was there but it's more in the critical masses like i've I've mentioned this movie with like sinas but this is more for lack of a better word the like highfalutin type of critical community was ready to embrace this movie Mm -hmm. that early but like the general populace not so much um yeah It is still surprising. What was the Oscar adapted screenplay lineup? Because it got a Writers Guild nomination, um, yeah, and it was nominated for the scripter, which also nominates the original um, Oscar. The thing about the adapted screenplay category was this was one of those years where the best picture category was very, very heavily adapted. So 
No uh-huh. Country for Old Men wins that year. Joel and Ethan Cohen get the Oscar for adap- adapting the Cormac McCarthy novel. There Will Be Blood, obviously based on the Upton Sinclair novel Oil. That is a nominee. Atonement, Christopher Hampton's screenplay based on the Ian McEwan novel. And then you've got Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which was, of course, a Best Director nominee. That was Ronald Harwood, who had been not nominated. Or did Harwood win for The Pianist? Uh, I think he won. I think he did, too. And then the yeah. fifth nominee, one of my favorites, and one I was so pulling for, um, even with you know Zodiac in contention, but it was away from her, the Sarah Polly nomination for adapting the Alice Munro short story uh, that became away from her. And I was so, so, so happy. Obviously, the screenplay categories do not um, recognize women enough. And this was also the year that three women were nominated in the original screenplay category. Diablo Cody yes. wins for Juno. Nancy Oliver nominated for Lars and the Real Girl. And our girl Tamara Jenkins nominated for The Savages alongside Michael Clayton and Ratatouille. Like, the screenplay nominees that year were legit. Like, it was, for as much as... I do think it's interesting that the most precursor attention Zodiac does get is for its screenplay, which I I get because, A... Mm-hmm. It covers a lot of ground and is, does it very cleverly. And I think that's where you get a lot of that sort of like procedural shoe leather kind of like respect for this movie goes into that screenplay. Also, as we mentioned, I think during our Truth episode, Vanderbilt was kind of the prime mover on this project. He's the one who brought it to Fincher. The screenplay was like existed as an entity long before Fincher ever signed on. Fincher was mm-hmm. reportedly originally gung ho about making a Black Dahlia movie, and that sort of fell through. That fell and apart because of De Palma, right? De Palma ends up making his Black Dahlia movie, and because he wasn't Fincher wasn't able to make a Black Dahlia movie, he moves on to Zodiac. But so I get the the attention paid to Vanderbilt's screenplay, but like to me, this movie is such an aesthetic movie this is such a director's movie to me that it's mm-hmm. funny that there's all that attention precursor wise relatively this movie was ultimately not given enough precursor attention in general but a lot of it that it was was to the screenplay when i think like god where was fincher's name on all of these best director lineups and some of it too is that i think there's a lot of reasons why this movie didn't ultimately get an Oscar nomination being pushed to March from the previous year, uh, the length of the movie, the box office failure of the movie, or like relative failure of the movie. But I think 2007 is also a year where all of those things that are true about Zodiac that make it great are true of a lot of other movies that became bigger stories. Like, by the time that Zodiac was being actively campaigned by Paramount or, like, quietly actively campaigned by Paramount, like, it was kind of a foregone conclusion that the steamroll for the Coens would happen with No Country for Old Men. That's a very, like, That was gorgeous Paramount movie. Vantage, yes? Yes, that was yeah. Paramount Vantage and Miramax, which was also true for There Will Be Blood. Right, um, right. Which is the other big movie where it's like it's a certain level of male um, yes. filmmaker making a certain type of movie. And a lot of them are also fairly grim. Yeah. So it's like there's a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson also, similarities. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson is also one of those from that sort of fraternity of directors that I had mentioned earlier with Fincher and Aronofsky and Alexander Payne and whatnot. But the thing about Paul Thomas Anderson is he had his sort of like cult early movie with Heart 8, but truly like from Boogie Nights on, at least that was getting, if that wasn't getting a Best Picture nomination or a Director nomination for Paul Thomas Anderson, it was at least getting uh, 
acting nominations from the break. Um, Mm -hmm. Punch Drunk Love, I believe, got a screenplay nomination. I don't think so. Okay. Magnolia, at the very least, gets an acting nomination and a screenplay nomination. Um, So, like, by the time we get to There Will Be Blood, it's a breakthrough for Paul Thomas Anderson in that it's finally Best Picture nominee, Best Director nominee, but it's not like they went from, like, totally ignoring him to, you know, him breaking through. Yeah. Anyway. Punch Truck Love, not nominated for any Oscars. Okay. So maybe we could talk about eventually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the thing the thing about Fincher and the Oscars this year is like I look at and I get why Julian Schnabel was a nominee for Diving Bell and the Butterfly, but like isn't Fincher for Zodiac a much better lone director nominee mm-hmm. this year? Like isn't doesn't for a lot of reasons, not just because we love the movie, but just like for a lot of reasons that, you know, it very easily could have been. It's not like the Diving Bell and the Butterfly was driven by this like great acting performance that was nominated you know it's not like the pianist or something like that right where i mean matthew almerich was probably sixth or seventh place in best you actor. think so that's interesting i think that i mean i i definitely think he was somewhere in like five to ten especially we... considering how well that movie turned out wasn't it also max von Sydow was considered for that movie was he I thought so. Interesting. Have we played the uh, Best Picture Extend It to 10 game with 2007 yet? I think we have because I remember having this debate regarding Ratatouille. Oh, yeah, I do kind of think of that. All right, we won't do it again. So it's it's a lot of factors that like prevented Zodiac from happening. It was so easy to kind of be overlooked but it was so consistently overlooked yeah that it's it is kind of shocking yeah it is it's definitely kind of shocking but as i said the years have been kind to zodiac i don't think we are um you know going to be in too many arguments when we say that this movie is you know the best movie that we've covered and and one of the greats i think the culture at least film culture has really come around to it um and rightly so. Yeah. I mean, like I said, like David Fincher has several masterpieces, but like this is the David Fincher movie to me. Um, yeah. I mean, especially because it kind of like what we consider about David Fincher, what's definitive about him, it kind of all gels around this time. The number of takes, the digital photography, the like just. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love this uh, movie. Can we actually take it back? Because we didn't really unpack the beach scene. Sure. Let's just do. to like get, I know listeners will want us to like talk about that movie. Yeah. It's so upsetting for so many different ways. And the scene keeps like changing as it goes. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so upsetting. It's kind of funny at some point, yes. which is really upsetting. Yes. Um, at, right at the point where, cause it seems for a second, like the killer doesn't know how to proceed once he's got the gun on them and the guy throws his wallet and throws the keys and it's just sort of like no reaction and it's just like you can almost see him just like all right what do i do now like where do i proceed in this and the suspense is terrifying but it's also you're right there's this like dark kind of comedy 
to it. It Which also feels very definitive to like the Fincher brand of comedy. It's like the same type of thing where in Dragon yes. Tattoo, Enya starts playing in a torture scene and you don't know if you're supposed to laugh, but really you're yeah. supposed to laugh. Um, it also employs whole... one of my favorite scenes of, uh, of horror slash terror, which is um, the killer. This is why it follows is one of my favorite horror movies. The killer is approaching from a distance and you see you as the viewer of the movie, and sometimes in this case, the character sees it as well. The, the woman, at least, sees him coming. But you see him at a distance, and you know that this is a killer, and he's just approaching steadily, and there's nothing yeah. you as a viewer can do to stop it. You can just see like his head and torso over the like wheat grass or whatever. And that then is. there's the shot where you can't tell whether you see him or not, where you can't tell whether he's. Is he at the tree? Is he behind the tree? Is he? Can you see part of him peeking out behind the tree? Crouching. She seems like she can't seem to see him, but you are constantly trying to place him in the frame, and that mm-hmm. stress of trying to do that is the oh god, my those are my, just it's my that, absolute favorite scenes in movies where you as the viewer are responsible for scanning the screen, and you have to find this whatever is malevolent in this frame before it jumps out at you or just like it's i love it i love it so much it's a very like trigger response that's one of the reasons why that shot is so brilliant because it's so perfectly out of your mind when you like see something out of the corner of your eye and you get that like impulse that jolt impulse it it really does like put you in those victims like headspace from the beginning of the scene and then it is so slow and drawn out and like you're kind of like giggling to yourself and then while this whole scene, he's had a gun on them, and you think mm-hmm. it's going to be gun violence, and he ties them up, yep. and then you get oh, the God. closest shot in this whole scene because it's kind of shot at like uh, it's like medium shots and like not full yeah. close-ups. You get the barrel of the gun so that you can see that it was loaded, yeah, very close to the camera, and you think that everything's over, but then it stays in these like extreme close-ups and it's a knife. Yes. It's so intense and it pulls the rug out from under you in so many different ways. I remember the first time I saw it in the theater, people left. Oh, wow. Too much. Well, it's, it's so, um, it's, I also don't think there's any score in that scene. I could be mistaken, but I don't don't think think so either. And so you hear the knife sounds. As just this blunt sort of like the foley work in that is commendable because it's so sickening. It's so incredibly just it's not over the top. It's very, very like subtle, but oh, Mm. so effective. And just like it's awful. The way they scream feels more like medical than horror movie. It's yeah. Um, If the other scene I want to bring up is. We touched on it earlier, but the scene in the car with Ioni Sky as the the mother of the little baby, and it's the scene in the movie that most reminds me of Seven. Not the part where they're in the car, but after he says, "Got it," and it sends chills every single time. And I know what's coming when he says, "Before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window." And up uh-huh. to that point. She, we know he's the killer because we've watched we're watching a movie called Zodiac and we've seen two of these killings already. She doesn't until they pass the gas station, 
And then you mm-hmm. see it dawn on her. But then for him to just sort of so matter-of-factly say, before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. And then we sort of fade out and we fade back and it's the, the semi has pulled over and the, the other motorist comes out of the car. And it reminded me of those scenes in Seven where they're coming to the murder scene after the fact. and mm-hmm. Or that scene where like the guy's in interrogation and starts screaming um, because he can't deal with oh yeah the um the lust the guy killing. with the strap oh god right um uh and so and that where like Ioni Sky is just screaming and you don't know what she's screaming about and you you are expecting um that like something horrible has happened to the baby and ultimately the baby ends up being okay it's like the one sort of like mercy in this movie of the fact that, <laughs> that the, the baby baby's fine okay. but she had to hide the baby in she case he, he came come back. back and it's just like it's, you're still as a viewer you're trying to put it together in your head of like how did she get out of that car but like that ultimately becomes less important than this sort of like the people sort of like coming upon her after the fact and seeing this ultimate terror in her eyes and her voice and she can't handle you don't know if she's crazy you don't know what she's been through it's a really interestingly subtly gendered scene too because like us in a modern society we're like watching the scene and we're like oh my god that would have been absolutely terrifying to be a woman and have like no resources to get help for yourself and this man offers to help you what do you do? Because, like, of course, the idea... You can see it in Ioni Sky's performance, too, that it's like, maybe there's the idea of danger. Like, maybe right. I should or shouldn't do this. What are my choices? Right. And then when you have the aftermath scene, there's a man standing at a truck that's already gotten there, but the second car to pull over is a woman, and she's the there's one that comes yes. and helps her. Um, yep. So, like, David Fincher's just so smart with small things like that that other filmmakers wouldn't think about. But um, I also think because you have that weird fade out, because to my understanding, that woman, like, blacked out basically during this. So it's like, it's one of the more effectively upsetting uses of David Fincher saying, okay, well, we are going to shoot what we have, like, police documentation for. Um, Yeah. And, like, be as detailed to that as possible. Yeah. Oh, God. Such a good movie. It's so... I, like... (laughs) Listeners. I know. I know. Again, apologies for this movie dropping off of Netflix unceremoniously i looked it up i swear when and it was not on those lists um but if you haven't seen this movie guys like hole up for the three hours run don't walk yeah watch this damn movie it's absolutely worth it it's so uh so fantastic it should we maybe okay so let's talk a little bit about 2006 (laughs) because when we're talking about these we've done them a few times and it feels like it used to happen way more often to movies that we were like predicting for Oscars and then they get pushed off to the next calendar year. And a lot of those movies, I'm thinking of like Freedom Land where Julianne Moore absolutely <gasps> sure. was like getting best we actress talk Freedom before Land it got pushed. Point. Yeah. Oh, please. No, that movie is garbage. Um, I know, but it's so perfect for our purposes. And it's actually, but, there's a lot of angles to Freedom Land that I think would be interesting to talk sure, about. Sure, 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 sure. But like that, it that used to be way more of a thing than it is now. Right. Um, like you don't really see these movies getting shuttled off. It's almost like they're probably 
it's probably more of a financial thing because studios are like preparing the money that they're going to spend for a campaign even if a movie ultimately doesn't have like what it takes it's probably a financial decision that it's going to hurt them more to push a movie i also i also wonder if it's a product of studios seem to be much more forward planning with their schedules and you're Mm -hmm. looking you're probably looking at studios that are well like next year's awards budget is already kind of allocated we've already got yeah. our you know the movies that yeah we in think, the decade for after so non definitely true yeah so it's yeah. like you're talking about you know we're not talking about an indie shingle even that like you can sense where like maybe something like fox searchlight is going to play it by ear and maybe something will emerge from the festivals and whatnot but like paramount is just going to be like well we know what's coming next year and we know yeah. where our budget is going to go and I think uh, you like more and more, you know, obviously this is part and parcel of the franchise craze, right? Where like all the big studios now with their franchises, they're, you know, I get the email from Universal every year where it's just like, here's Universal's uh, slate and they're literally blocked out for the next five years. And it's just like, wow, okay. Yeah. And even at the time, like, in the 90s, 2000s, when it was more common to have, like, Oscar-predicted movies suddenly pushed into the next year, mm-hmm. there was, like, a stigma that it's if it gets pushed to February, March, like Zodiac was, that it's like, oh, maybe the movie's not that good. Because yeah. um, even, like, Titanic was expected to bomb because they pushed it back six months twice. Yes, yeah. So it's like it you do kind of amass a reputation before people even see the movie. Another interesting yeah. like release calendar thing about Zodiac is this also played can after it opened in the US, oh, which like yeah. used to be a thing, but I yeah. I'm curious when they started actually saying you have to be a world premiere to be in the competition. Because this played in competition with the eventual best picture winner. Do you think no it would have come from that from can or do you think that comes from studios just i'm pretty sure it's can says to be a competition movie you have to be a world premiere though that's not true because pain and glory last year had opened in spain maybe it's maybe you're right that it is just a strategy thing i think i wonder if it's maybe just a thing where it's just like uh awards campaigns have become much more regimented and uh, you mm-hmm. have a rollout, and you're not going to deviate from that rollout. You see less studio pictures in the competition at Cannes, but uh, yeah, and 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 ultimately with Zodiac, you can chalk that up to, you know, they they ultimately were shuffling the the calendar on this movie up until the end, and yeah, uh huh. Sigh. Perhaps the movie, though, I don't think its Cannes response was all that great i know that the the french press did not care for the movie um you kind of wonder a little bit if like its world premiere had been at this major world festival if even like the u.s press could have pushed it a little bit more for consideration just because of having what having a launch like that can do for a movie yeah yeah it's definitely part of me feels like you know god damn it why couldn't people have gotten on board with this movie on an earlier time frame. But I also wonder if the rejection of it and the snubbing of it helped contribute to how quickly 
people came around on it as this sort of, you know, Fincher's unheralded masterpiece. There was a minute there with, for whatever rights issues it had on home release, where it wasn't that available. Mm. So once it became available again, it kind of allows for a sense of rediscovery for a movie. Like it's kind of primed for that. Yeah. I don't know. That's true. That's sort of, you know, that that scarcity of, and it certainly plays right into the wheelhouse of the kind of the Fincher fans, right? There's, you know, the collectors, the, Mm -hmm. um, if something is a rarity, they're going to go out and find it, that kind of a thing. What is your favorite Fincher? We should probably answer this question for our listeners. I mean, God, there's... I mean, I'm pretty clear that this is mine, even though, like, (laughs) there is stiff competition, but, like, this is the one for me. For years, I probably would have said Fight Club. And it's not like I like Fight Club less. Sometimes I get a little weary of fighting the the Fight Club argument with people. Sometimes I get a little mm-hmm. weary of having to like make the case for why that movie isn't what people think it is. So I sometimes just prefer to like not talk about it as much as I used to. Um, but Fight Club was a very, very, uh, not exactly pivotal movie for me. I was already like a big old Oscar nerd and movie nerd by the time that movie came about. But like I was in college, I was, my roommates were all straight guys. We all went and saw this movie together and they, I think appreciated it on one level. And I appreciated it on like multiple levels because my Brad Pitt's FUPA. Well, I was going to say my great uh, X-Men superpower was that I was gay and, and no one knew it. So, um, (laughs) I could, I could see, and I could see colors they couldn't see. So, um, Fight Club will always have... You saw that movie in Smell-O-Vision. I sure fucking did. Did I not? Um, Fight Club will always have a special place in my heart, but I think it's Zodiac. I think Zodiac is my favorite with like a special also honorable mention to Seven, which I think is also like practically a perfect movie. Perfect movie. Perfect movie. Yeah. I would make the case for Gone Girl being Mm. in the top three. I think think that's... There's a... I think it's... David Fincher's Mike Nichols movie. I think every director makes their Mike Nichols movie. That's a great... God, that's a great point. God, I... Um, I have... I'm the hard eyes emoji for you right now for making that... uh, (laughs) For making that comparison. God damn it. But it is... I think there's a certain sense... I mean, like, that movie is still probably too recent for reassessment, but I think there was a certain sense of that movie, aside from it being not as rewarded by Oscar as it should have been and very well could have been. I believe that's a movie where it's sixth place in a couple categories. Um, Pop quiz. And then I want by this kind of schlocky novel sense or like this kind we've talked about this before where it's like the novels that are like sold in every target in America and everybody reads like they get discounted a little bit in like our current society where I don't think people realize how deep that movie is and how deep it goes and how funny it is. It's David Fincher's most outright comedy he's ever made. The disrespect shown to Reese Witherspoon in 2014 by the Oscars, and I know she was nominated, (laughs) but it will not go forgotten by me. The fact that both Gone Girl and Wild, both of the movies she produced, uh, were relegated to actress categories which Mm -hmm. you know and i know we both revere those categories but we also know that too many movies are relegated to 
actress categories in a way that feels like let the ladies have their fun. We're going to nominate the boy movies for Best Picture. When the reality is both Wild and Gone Girl far more deserve to be in that top 10 than any other movie basically nominated that year. Gone Girl is like the female Zodiac in that Zodiac where like you could nominate two, maybe even three supporting male performances. I think you could nominate two, maybe three female performances in Gone Girl. Uh, Carrie Coon's wanna... incredible. Kim Dickens is absolutely incredible. Casey Wilson screaming, uh, <laughs> what? what you do to your wife, Nick? Amazing. Um, Casey, now we've m- managed to uh, mention both Casey Wilson and June Diane Raphael in the David Fincher episode. Truly, we have uh, brought gay culture to David Fincher, finally. Um, one pop quiz what's what do you think is the shortest david fincher movie without looking seven it is not but it comes close uh is it alien longer than no alien 3 is kind of long is it alien Alien, 3 alien 3 is its his second shortest by only two minutes okay so you've managed oh it's gotta be social network then it's social network it's not social network is a is a clean two hours uh, the short, his shortest film. So now you've mentioned his second, third, and fourth shortest films. So truly, you are painting the corner. His shortest film is Panic Room. Yeah, Panic Room Justice at 112 Panic minutes. Room. Panic Room's great. You've mentioned you managed to mention the only four movies that are two hours or shorter. Everything else is longer than two hours. Um, now that you've mentioned this, though, I want to rank the Finchers because he hasn't made that many that it will take too long. But all right, so I think I go Zodiac one. Seven, two, Fight Club is number three, Gone Girl is number four, Panic Room is number five, Social Network six, um, now I have to figure out where I put the game versus Dragon Tattoo. Seven and eight are the game and dragon tattoo in some order. Benjamin Button. I think the game is probably the. I mean, there's definitely going to be. The thing about Fincher stance is there's definitely going to be people in our mentions being like, the game is great. Um, we love you guys. Um, the game think, is easily the least for me. Like, I think the I game and dragon and tattoo like, are flawed in, if not similar ways, then like two similar degrees. The game is, I think, a solid movie, but like it doesn't. There, there's not as much that's memorable about it um, as his other movies are as distinct. I think that the ending to it is so anti-Fincher to me. Um, mm. We're also forgetting Alien 3, by the way. So Alien I, mean, 3 I think Alien probably. 3 is not that great of a movie. I, for as much as like there are Even some the director's cut is like... It. He had ideas yeah. that he wanted to do, and like the, it's still in the DNA of that movie. But yeah. like that's probably the lowest ranked Fincher movie for me. Also, I probably after after my top, so my top four: uh, Zodiac, Seven, Fight Club, Gone Girl. Then I think it's the trailer to Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, the trailer to The Social Network, and the trailer to Zodiac. Before we get into okay, the else. level of David Fincher's incredible sense of publicity and marketing remember the finger quotes bootleg dragon tattoo red band trailer Mm -hmm. 
that never played in theaters, but the bootleg that went everywhere on YouTube and wasn't taken down was in a theater. So he, like, had somebody... You can't tell me this isn't what happened. Because, like, of course he did it. Because, like, even the Dragon Tattoo DVDs that were sold were, like, they looked like bootleg DVDs. Which was the the one with the Zeppelin song? Uh, that it was the red band. That was the red band. Well, they use it in the movie. Um, right. But yes, he promoted that movie to basically be a bootleg. Yeah. Um, including the home release that the studio had to issue a statement that's like, no, this is what the DVD looks like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that trailer, somebody shot it on a camera in a theater, but the red band never played in theaters. That's wild. I mean, red bands I know, it's crazy. very rarely do play in theaters, but yeah, that's red I've band trailers. Before. before before the age of YouTube, red band trailers were like mythical beasts that, like, if you ever yeah. saw one, you needed to like mark down the day and the time because that was so. Even Showgirls rare. had a green band trailer. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then and then YouTube made you know it increasingly safe for red band trailers, but uh, yeah. Oh God, such a good filmography. My- my Fincher ranking, with the clear to make it clear, the only statement that I, the statement that the only one that I don't think is good is Alien Three. Yeah. Um, even though it has a lot to recommend for it, I would say Zodiac, Seven, Gone Girl, Social Network, then Fight Club, then Benjamin Button, then Panic Room, then Dragon Tattoo, then The Game. I like Dragon Tattoo a lot. I think it has a lot of first act issues where it's like you can see how this movie, they had a hard time getting it to the running length that it already has. The problem for me with Dragon Tattoo, I think, is it has absolutely no rewatch draw for me. I never really feel like I want to see that movie again. Not like, not in oh, the way the that just like... the last hour of that movie, though. I... I I probably should see it again. And it's not like there's anything in the movie that I find so um, distasteful or, like, unpleasant that I never would want it to, like, that I would run out of the room if it started playing again. But I don't ever feel like, you know what I want to watch today is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, is David Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think I respect it, um, as I respect pretty much all of his movies. But... I whereas like it feels if, like an artifact, right? Like it, yeah. the world was obsessed with the Millennium yeah. trilogy for a hot minute and like they got David Fincher on a movie. And it's clearly because of the Rooney Mara presence, you find you you sort of see it as an offshoot of the social network and that like she was in the one scene in social network and he was so, you know, enamored of her that he cast her as the lead in this. And you're right, the book makes it very very much of the time. Um but whereas, like, if I'm watching television or, like, flipping through, like, the HBO channels and I see the opening credits to Panic Room, I know what I'm doing for the next two hours. I'm watching Panic Room. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, Gone Girl the same way. And it's just, like, I don't think the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo has that draw. So I haven't been able to do what I do with a lot of my favorite Fincher movies is watch them again and again and have sort of like new and evolving appreciations for them, which is what I've been able to do with obviously Zodiac with Gone Girl, with Panic Room, with Seven, you know, that kind of thing. 
What are your final notes for Zodiac? And then we can move into the IMDb game. I feel like we've really hit everything. We mentioned uh, Junjai and Raphael. We mentioned all the character actors, the overhead shot of the Golden Gate, um, the the sort of the turn of the century directors and everything like that. I think we, mm-hmm. I think we've covered everything. It's just such a good movie. What about you? Was there it's anything? Such a good movie. Anything from your notes uh, I mean, that we haven't mentioned? All of that, all we've said, I think it is a... T- even though you are absolutely right that Hitchcock comparisons are like so overused, but like there's a depth to Hitchcock too that I think that goes beyond whatever... Um, there's like a human depth element and like that he is always getting at something perverse in our culture that I think is very true about Fincher um, Mm. and here too. And I feel like this is the one where we don't necessarily talk about that, but I was really struck watching it this time, just that it's kind of about a culture of paranoia and a culture that's traumatized by random violence. And it felt more like a post nine 11 movie than I'd ever considered before. Mm. Um, And the way that it feels like it's a little bit, um, talking about how we lived at that time and the constant fear of living under terrorism and trying to solve, you know, a problem that felt unsolvable. Um, Was Osama bin Laden dead at this point? I don't, it's certainly not while we were filming or while they were filming. Um, I was just really struck by that. Um, Yeah. Kind of in an interesting way that I will continue to. No, bin Laden didn't, Bin Laden didn't get killed to the Obama administration, and this was all pre-Obama. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, The other thing that I think is striking is there's five years that go between the release of Panic Room and the release of Zodiac. And obviously a lot of that is because there's, you know, the production of Zodiac took a whole lot of time. But then if you go from the five years from Zodiac going forward, he makes three movies. He makes The Curious Case of Benjamin Mm -hmm. Button, Social Network, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo unarguably his most successful run when you talk about uh, both box office, cultural impact Oscars, like all three of them are, um, I didn't know the dragon tattoo, the, um, the gross wasn't what they wanted it to be because of the like worldwide phenomenon of it all. Um, And, you know, it basically stunted this idea of like, Oh, it's going to be a trilogy because there are books and whatever, whatever. They that got movie, that editing it, Oscar, and they deserved it. And Rooney got her first acting nomination. Like it was mm-hmm. uh, definitely, it. definitely a success. So I think it's interesting that I think the 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 gap between Panic Room and Zodiac, I think, built up this anticipation for what's the next Fincher movie going to be, and then mm-hmm. that after Zodiac happened, he had such a big mainstream breakthrough, or at least like. Um, mainstream hollywood breakthrough i think is significant yeah it's gonna be interesting this fall when mank theoretically opens and netflix i'm sure netflix is gonna throw so much money behind that movie because they know they they want directors of a certain stature and as we have seen those are the ones that they throw their money behind because it's been six years since gone girl and granted we've had mindhunter but Mm. mindhunter by the way so good. Like if you, if you know you're you're longing to for a it. taste of Fincher, it you it really gives it to you. There's a lot of Zodiac actually in Mindhunter. That Zodiac is easily the the movie of Fincher's that Mindhunter most you know brings to the forefront. And like obviously for you know story reasons, but also just stylistically. Ah, 
So good. So good. So good. We love Zodiac. We're both in agreement. Yeah. Best movie we've ever covered. Yes, 100%. Fantastic. Would you like to move into the IMDb game? I sure would. All right, why don't you explain what the IMDb game is? Oh, yes, I should, actually. Uh, Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other uh, with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Chris, let's do it. All right. Would you like to give or guess first? Why don't I give first? All right. What do you have for me? I can never tell. Whenever I make that decision, I always try and think of, like, have I been, like, do I give or guess first, like, more often? Am I imbalanced in any way? And I can never remember, literally, from week to week, (laughs) what I choose. So it's very, very possible that I always choose the same one and think I'm mixing it up. And uh, I don't know. Fascinating. Listeners, tell me more about that. Um, all right, I am going to give to you, I sort of went through, obviously, Fincher has worked with so many actors and actresses over the years. Uh, a lot of them we had our, have already done in the IMDb game, and I wanted to pick out a new one. I picked out a someone who has really only essentially played a very small part in one Fincher movie, but I would love to see her do more. She was a small part in Gone Girl. I am, of course, speaking of Missy Pyle. So, oh, I love Missy Pyle. This is going to be hard. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I'll just say Gone Girl. No, not Gone Girl. You've got to be kidding me. Um, no. There's a million people credited to Gone Girl. Is there any TV? No, no TV. Okay. I'm trying to think of what even her TV, her big TV credit would be. She's done, like, bits and stuff. Oh, for sure. Um, She's been in, like, everything. Uh, okay. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Correct. Violet Beauregard's mother in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Okay. Once again, Tim Burton comes through. She's in Ma. Can I guess Ma? (laughs) I would have absolutely guessed Ma. Uh, that is not correct. Um... Damn. Quick anecdote about Ma. So uh, my friends and I have our annual, now at least recently annual, Palm Springs trip uh, right around Oscar time. We did that again this year, and we managed to um, hook up their uh, Roku so we could watch Ma. So one of us had rented Ma, so we watched Ma. Half of the room had seen it, and half of the room had not. And so the part in Ma, and fast forward about... 35 seconds if you haven't seen Ma. But I think we've done a lot to spoil Ma. Ma on this podcast. <laughs> but it's the big spoiler in Ma, as far as I'm concerned. It's the part that most benefits from you not knowing what's going to happen. So, like, fast forward in a minute. Whatever. And it's not the dog blood transfusion that doesn't happen? No, but that's amazing. Um, no, it's the part where Ma runs over Missy Pyle with the van and then turns on the radio <laughs> in September. And she turns on in September. <laughs> So half of us have seen the movie, so we know what's coming. So, of course, I, like, pull out my phone and start just, like, I'm only recording the screen. I don't, I hate that when, like, you record people in anticipation of something you're going to see. It's just, like, so I'm just, like, recording the screen, but, like, you can hear the audio from the room. And uh, Ma runs her down, and in the split second between Ma running her down 
and the radio turning on, you can hear somebody in the room just go, Mercedes? Because her character's name is Mercedes. And then she turns on the radio, and the entire room fucking flips out. And it's just, like, screaming. And, and uh, it's that sort of, it's that uh, meme where it's just, like, brackets homosexual screaming. And it's like, that's what's happening in that moment. It's so good. It's so much fun. I love that movie. That was the last good moment. That and then Parasite won Best Picture the next day. And then nothing good ever happened ever again. <laughs> <laughs> that was it that was the end of it um anyway impact. um thank you for stalling so that i could not think of any other missy pile movies two strikes while though, so i you was get trying years. furiously to you get years so now your years are right, 1999 2004 and 2011 okay 99 99 is a beloved movie that i would say is a cult it's a cult movie that a lot of people have seen i'll say that it's appreciation feels very cult but it was like it sounds m- like office space no she in office space she's not in office space okay it's a little more culty than office space all right well the office space cult has thankfully kind of died um it has kind of you're right The 2004 movie is a more mainstream comedy. Okay. And the 2011 movie is an awards movie. It's 2004 Along Came Polly? No. Remember she's in that. This is the toughest you've given me in a long time. I know. Um, I know. Is it Bringing Down the House? She's in Bringing Down the House. It's not Bringing Down the House. Um, all right, let's see. How are we going to do this? Like, Dodgeball is a very mainstream comedy. It's, it's, what did, I gave it to you. Jesus Christ. I'm so stupid. Oh, Dodgeball! I hate um, that that happened. Wait, is I'm 99 so Josie pissed. and the Pussycats? I feel like that's not the right year. No. I hate that I did that so much, I almost want to do this whole thing over again. God damn it! We would have to cut out all the mods. I know. No, we're not going to do it. No, we're not going to do it. We're just going to live with my failure, and we're going to live with my shame. How about this? How about this? I, with the person I give you, I will give you No, 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 no. That's fine. We're going to, again, we're going to live with my shame For the record, your person is a little bit easier than mine. Okay, we got to get through Missy Pyle, though. Missy Pyle. I do want to say. So, wait. Dodgeball is very funny still to me to this day. Justin Long is so funny in that movie. And I really do kind of love Missy Pyle, who's basically in that movie as a sight gag because she can make, she can look so severe. That's the problem with Missy Pyle is I feel like she's always a sight gag in a lot of these movies. One of the two remaining movies is also also very kind of that. Okay. Uh, Is it the 99 movie that is a cult but not really a cult? Yes. Movie. Okay, 99. 99 is talked about all the time. Yes. I have to be able to get 99. Literally, said it's a comedy. It's literally, a one comedy. of our very recent guests was tweeting about this movie, like, yesterday or the day before. I mean, we haven't had that many guests recently, so I'm guessing that it's Griffin. Uh-huh. I... Didn't see said tweets, but I'm trying to think of a movie Griffin would like. One of the I'm stars guess because you're saying, "Go ahead." What's up? One of the stars of this movie was the star of an early Fincher movie. Mm, it's not going to be Brad Pitt if it's a comedy. It's not going to be Morgan. Well, it could be Morgan Freeman. 
Wait. It's Sigourney Weaver, it's Galaxy Quest. It's Sigourney Weaver's Galaxy Quest, yes. Very well done. Missy Pyle's in makeup in that movie, right? Yeah, she's again, she's basically oh in that movie God. because she looks very like intense and severe as an alien. <laughs> okay, so 2011 could be anything. I forget what her particular role in this movie is, but I always remember that she's in it. Okay. It is again. I'm guessing it's another comedy, obviously. Yes. Mm. It's, it's a comedy, sub- but it's like it's it's a highfalutin comedy. Aha. Uh-huh. Is it like a Woody Allen movie? No. Mm. Again, an awards movie. It's 2000 The Help. She's not in The Help. Is she in The Help? She's not in The Help. It's fully conceivable that she would be in The Help, It's conceivable, but Uh, she's not. It's an awards movie. Yes. 2011. Yes. What were... Okay. Not The Iron Lady. Nope. Not Money... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, I have... You largely blocked this movie Same. out of my memory. Same. But it's the artist. It's the artist. She is in the artiste. The artist has like Penelope Ann Miller. Uh-huh. Oh, it the cast in that movie is like that, yeah. goes deep, but yes. I forget almost all of it. I think Jesus. she's another actress who's whatever. Yes. Oh, sorry I screwed up Missy the dodgeball. Kyle, I love you. you. Sorry I bombed that. Yeah. All right, anyway. Well, interesting. For you, I have something a little bit easier, uh, much easier, I would say. I did not torture you this week. I, again, went with a David Fincher performer. We've been talking in this movie about performers who were not nominated and should have been. I gave you one who was nominated and I think still should have been. I gave you Rooney Mara. Oh, okay. Is Girl with the Dragon Tattoo one of them? Yes. The titular girl with the titular dragon right. tattoo. Okay. Um, is Social Network one of them? Social Network is one of them. Okay. Rooney, Rooney, Rooney. Um, I'm going to not guess Carol for the moment because I have a feeling that that as it did in many instances, got the old snubola from from IMDb. But where else would Rooney show up? Oh, well, we talked about this movie very recently, but side effects. Yes, side effects. All right. No wrong guesses. What's our number four for Rooney? It's not going to be a ghost story. It's probably not Ain't Them Bodies Saints. Um, Rooney, Rooney, Rooney. Obviously, <laughs> obviously no television, and I laugh at the idea that she that voice work would be among... Can you imagine a character voiced by Rooney Mara in an animated movie? Uh, there is a the Rooney low, Mara voice performance in a movie that you love. Really? Yeah, she's the villain in Kubo and the Two Strings. <gasps> You're right! Holy shit! And she's so good in it! God, I eat, yeah. <laughs> I'll eat my words on that. God, you're so right! Yeah. Okay. Self-owned. Yeah, for real. Okay. 
All right. You're missing just one. You don't have any wrong I guesses. don't have any wrong, which means I don't want to burn anything because I want to go for this perfect score. <sighs> All right. What other shit? It's not her Friday the 13th movie, or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie that she disparaged publicly. Um, to her credit, she is bad in that movie, and she I've never discrediting seen it. it because she was bad in it. I've never seen it. Um, casting Haley, uh, a Jackie Earl Haley in it, and so recent after Little Children, and I'm like, oh, are you leaning into the child molester angle of this movie? No, thank you. <laughs> um, like that's, I love that. That's like, oh, we're gonna, didn't work out. We're gonna it, focus on yeah. that. We're gonna, um, what'd you say? We'll cast a previous pedophile. I said, well, Watchmen didn't really work out for him, unfortunately. No, unfortunately. Post-Oscar um, now. Visionary director Zack Snyder. Okay, wait. Uh, Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara. Um, not Mary Magdalene. <laughs> um, a movie that doesn't exist. Doesn't. Truly doesn't exist. That was one I predicted for Oscars. Talk about this at Oscar Buzz. We could totally do that movie. We'd be one of the five people that have seen it. All right, I'm just going to guess Carol. You just got a perfect score. Woohoo! All I don't right. know why you would think Carol wouldn't show up. There. I just it's have a pessimistic dude about that. She got an Oscar nomination for it, though. She did. She sure did. It's true. She did. She's second build. She should have won. She's so good in that. She's so good in that. All right. Hello, perfect score. Love it. Hello, perfect score. Congratulations. Once again, my apologies to Missy Pyle. Um, that is our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, if our listeners have already been following us on Twitter, they'll be knowing that starting next week, we have another miniseries. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. We finally, we announced it on Twitter. Everybody seems to be down for it. We are doing a Naomi Watts miniseries. We're going to talk about four of her movies we had truly we were spoiled for choice there was a lot of different avenues for naomi we could have gone down we kind of wrangled with these for a while but we settled on la divorce the merchant ivory movie that she made with kate hudson we get to talk about kate hudson so excited um the painted veil the movie she made with edward norton and her then husband Liev schreiber uh, I think that's where they met. Where they just sort of if I'm uh, shacked up by them. Anyway, um, those we'll two movies, up. Diana, which buckle up, I've never seen it. I'm so excited for I Diana. I haven't either. <laughs> and her SAG-nominated performance in St. Vincent, which uh, the bafflement uh, already uh, is settling in. I still, still, still. Cannot wait. Cannot so, wait. Yes, anyway. The only element that I am excited to revisit about that movie, besides my Lieber hair, <laughs> um, I think we might have mentioned last week that we were doing the miniseries, but I don't think we mentioned the movies we did what not. movies we're doing. So yeah. if you guys want to catch up on Naomi Watts, those are the four movies we're doing. Feel free to catch up on any of the other movies that she's done. Yeah. We love Naomi. I think she's going to be a really exciting performer to talk about in our context. We've got some great guests lined up for some of these episodes. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a good time. It is going to be a good time. Once again, follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz for more of that. Joe, where can listeners find more of you? Sure. I'm on Twitter uh, dealing with these times uh, at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I endeavor to get back on track with Letterboxd as soon as... Um, my 
constitution allows me to uh, that is also uh, letterboxed at joe reed r-e-i-d and i am also on twitter having a little munch munch with my animal crackers and my bow tie <laughs> at chris v file that is f-e-i-l also on letterbox under the same name we would like to thank kyle cummings for his fantastic artwork and dave gonzalez and gavin mevius for their technical guidance please remember to rate and review us on apple podcasts google play stitcher wherever else you get your podcast a five-star review in particular really helps us out with apple podcast visibility so pass us those animal crackers in terms of reviews won't you that's all for this week but we hope you'll be back for next next week for more buzz and Naomi Watts to spend when the hurting good in man comes singing songs of love then when the hurting good in man comes singing songs of love 